Once upon a time, when phones still plugged into jacks and the most valuable real estate in the world wasn't on the internet, a man with two first names set out to make a short film about basketball in Chicago. As dreams sometimes do in the strange netherworld of documentaries, this one ballooned into hundreds of days of shooting and thousands of hours of raw footage. Over years, it was sanded and sifted and carved down into a film called Hoop Dreams. The director was Steve James. Over the last 30 years, Steve James has continued to follow the siren song of his inner voice, and he's been lucky for the most part to make the films he believed in and to catch wind in his sails to bring them into the world. His latest effort is a film called A Compassionate Spy. It is at once an espionage thriller and a love story that blends intimate interviews, arresting archival, and cinematic recreations to tell the tale of Ted Hall, a man who smuggled atomic secrets to the Soviet Union for reasons of conscience. Without further ado, I give you a conversation with Steve James. Steve James, uh, welcome to the podcast. You are one of the great icons of contemporary documentaries. It's a it's an honor to have you here. Wow, well, nice to be here. Thank you. Um, before we dive deep into a compassionate spy, which I absolutely loved, by the way, and I have about ten thousand questions, some of which I'll pepper you with uh, before it's all said and done. Um, for the purposes of our, you know, viewers and listeners, rather. Um, Take us through, we're coming up on what will be, I guess, close to the 30th anniversary of Hoop Dreams next year, maybe. Um, And you have had this incredible, long and storied, and I think very fascinating career. And I was thinking of the Orson Welles quote, better late than early. And you, you hit, you know, you hit it early, but you've managed to keep hitting it. Unlike Orson Welles, who had such a like, you know, embattled, you know, future from there forward. And what's it like been sort of carrying the legacy of that film? Is it, is it, you know, a door opener? Is it, is there like, are you tired of being like Steve James, the director of Hoop Dreams or, or like, what's it been like to carry the mantle of that for all these years? Well, it's funny you mention Orson Welles because there's another Orson Welles quote, <clears throat> which I, which I love, but I do not in any way equate myself with Orson Welles. He is a master, you know, great one of the greats of all time. But he said after Citizen Kane that he started at the top and he's been working his way down ever since. <laughs> <clears throat> and that was a concern I had, right? Because Hoop Dreams was such a big deal. And it was my first real film. And I do remember, you know, after it came out and all of the, you know, wonderful things that happened with it, like, okay, now what? Um, What's it going to be like? And I I think I kind of decided early on uh, for, for personal health reasons that I could not try and worry so much about trying to duplicate hoop dreams uh, Mm -hmm. in, in any kind of, you know, popularity way or maybe even an artistic way who knows but um but that you know just be thankful that that experience happened because it did in fact open doors tremendously for me um and it made it possible really for me to have the kind of career that i've had now if i made a bunch of lousy films after that i think you know i wouldn't still be making films but but hoop dreams definitely was the door opener 
and made all this possible for me. And I was, and I didn't expect it. That's the thing. I didn't expect it. I had no idea how people would look at that film and what they would think of it. Well, it's interesting too, kind of the legacy in, in, and, or, or how the medium has changed in a fundamental way. I mean, you were that early vanguard, whether it's you, Berlinger, Errol Morris, you know, there's that group of kind of folks who then, you know, that cohort of filmmakers in some way or another that launched the popularization of the medium or sort of made everybody wake up to the fact, wait a minute, these don't have to be like, you know, medicinal, you know, small bore things. These are these can be massive sort of big business and have a big audience. And, you know, I as a filmmaker have been like a huge beneficiary of that. I remember sitting there being an audience member and then, you know, now being able to make films for Netflix or Amazon or whoever. But I'm I'm curious, you, you seem to have like brilliantly maintained your ability to operate independently and kind of um with a with a with a remarkable degree of freedom. And I'm 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 curious how you've sort of stewarded that over the years and, and sort of what were the choices that have allowed you to you know, to do what you've exactly what you've wanted to do, or that's how it seems from the outside anyway. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I've been extremely fortunate in that regard. I, I don't quite know how I escaped um, uh, not getting brought to heel. Um. <laughs> Thank goodness you haven't. <laughs> you know, I think I think it started with Hoop Dreams because Hoop Dreams was three hours long and was, you know, about two kids and their families that no one had ever heard of. Um, and it and it sort of defied all of the conventional wisdom in its success, right? A three-hour sports documentary about two guys no one's ever heard of, and it was a success. I think that that did help give me a kind of um, empower me going forward to be able to do films that were, um, <clears throat> you know, challenging in different ways but still challenging and challenging in terms of length you know the the second documentary i made stevie um was which i also half, adore by the way oh thank you which was you know two and a half hours long and it's and it's uh it's not a hoop dreams kind of story as you know um but i was able to get that made um and i don't know that that would have been a film i could have possibly made if not for the success of hoop dreams that people were willing to take a chance on me. And, and so over the years, I've, yeah, I've been able to have ideas that I wanted to do. And not all of them have come to fruition, but a, but a, a, a good part of a good number of them have. And, you know, I've got this slick way of uh, working with, um, you know, funders and or um, you know, distribution partners where, um, they tell me I'm making a 90 minute film and I sign a contract that says I'm making a 90 minute film. And then when I give them a two hour film, <laughs> they, they kind of let me do it um, or longer. Uh, and so I, you know, I've, I think I've just, I've been able to, to make the films I want to make, but I think it all started with hoop dreams and the fact that it was such an unconventional success. 
So you've also, in, a, in an interesting fashion, been able to kind of elude the clutches of the streamers or the constraints of the streamers, you know. I mean, you're at an interesting spot right now, right? Like with these multiple projects that are sort of, you know, in, in recent, uh, you know, sort of in, coming into the world recently, whether it's the 30 for 30 and a compassionate spy at the same time. How are you navigating the kind of commercial constraints or, you know, um, the ability to kind of play in, in in both those markets and fields, you know what I mean? Like th those are those are different lanes you're in on those two films. Well, so here's the thing: I have never been able, despite efforts, to work with HBO. And I I know the people at HBO, and they profess to really like my work, um, but I have never managed to get a project off the ground with HBO. I've not gotten a project off the ground with any of the streamers uh, yet either, um, and. It's not like I haven't tried, but whatever it is about what I want to do has not appealed to them enough to want to take the leap with me. And so, you know, it's not, so some of that is, um, you know, a colleague of mine, Gordon Quinn, who, who has worked with me many times over the years, and I learned a lot from Gordon Quinn, he liked to say that he's been trying to sell out for years, but no one was buying. And um, <laughs> There's a little bit of that with me, but uh, maybe not exactly. But, but you know, I I haven't been put in a position where I've had to really compromise what it is I want to make um, because of the power of the distributor or the streamer that's involved. And that may yet come. You know, I'm still I'm I'm not opposed at all to working with people with deep pockets and streamers who have great audiences. But it just hasn't come to that yet. And so I have managed to, to be able to kind of sidestep some of those more commercial problems that I think a lot of filmmakers have. You know, the la with the exception of the ESPN series that I just did, the last three um, projects I did were funded by participant media. And they have been phenomenal partners for me because they get what I want to do. They're totally supportive of their filmmakers and the filmmakers vision. And so I couldn't have had better partners. And then it was just a matter of once we completed those works, okay, who are we going to sell it to? You know, we're not, we're not beholden to uh, someone creatively or editorially at that point. It's sort of like, do you like the film or do you like the docuseries? Do you want it? If not, we'll try to get someone else. So take that as kind of a case study in, in terms of like talking us through, like, like let's look at the current film and, and, and let's talk about the genesis of that, right? And kind of your process from kind of your first fascination with the story to the idea of, okay, now it's time to do this as a film, to getting participant on board. And what kind of, take us through in a bit of granular detail, what is that process? You've done a couple of movies with them. What, you know, what do you walk in with? How does the story end up on your lap and what do you walk into participant? participant with? Yeah, so with Compassionate Spy, um, what happened was is that I was approached about the story by a guy named Dave Lindorf, who was an investigative journalist who I had interviewed for Abacus, Small Enough to Jail. <clears throat> and Dave had written a piece about Ted Hall, this wonderkin young physicist, um, and what he had done. Uh, and when he wrote that piece and it appeared online, Ted's widow, surviving wife, you know, um, reached out to him and thanked him for the piece. And that led to him thinking, wow, I think there's a really good film here. And 
you know, since Dave only knew me as a documentary filmmaker, you know, he didn't know anybody else. He didn't know Alex Gibney. He didn't know, you know, someone else to go to. He came to me and he said, hey, what do you think? Do you think this could be a film? And the more I learned about it, I thought, I think it could. And so, and this is not untypical for me. Uh, I mean, I've, I've started films in many different ways, but this is not, this is one way I've done it more than once, which is we went to Great Britain, Great Britain, and we sat down in Cambridge with Joan Hall and her daughters, and we spent three or four days there filming with her. And based on that, I was trying to decide, do I think there's a film here? And one of the qu real questions I had was, I knew Ted had been dead for over 20 years. Like, how are we going to tell his bring story yeah. and bring him to life? Well, when I found out there was these recordings of him and video of him from before he died speaking candidly about it, then I thought, okay, I think there's a film here. So I came back. I started to work on a demo um, based on that, that material that I, I captured and that I got uh, of Ted. And, and at that point, then I started to look at who would be interested in, in partnering up with me. Now, I went to participant initially, and they, um, they, they didn't think it was a, a, a great fit when I told them about the project before I showed them anything. But then when I showed them the demo that I had put together that ran about 10 minutes, um, then they were like, oh, oh oh, we like this, this could work for us. And so then they decided to get aboard, come aboard. And again, I had a history with them. They had funded uh, two docuseries that I had done, America to Me and City So Real. <clears throat> and so I had this great relationship with participant, with Diane Weirman, uh, may she rest in peace. Um, and, and so because of that, um, they were, you know, they liked working with me, that helps, you know. It, it helps to have people that just like working with you in addition to liking the work that you do. And so it ended up being a, a great match and they came aboard and they funded the film and then we went out with it to uh, festivals and with the intent of selling it to distri a distributor and Magnolia came aboard, uh, which was great. I had worked with Magnolia on the Roger Ebert documentary, Life Itself. They're a great company and they've been great to work with. So how refined, when you come in with that demo, right? So it's 10 minutes right. long. How, how much time have you spent in the edit? How, how kind of refined and dialed is that? How slick is it? And sort of what slice of the story are you telling when you're, when you're presenting it to participant? Yeah, it's not slick. I don't, I don't do, you know, there's that term sizzle reel, right? Um, which I frankly hate that term. I hate it, it too. Yeah. It, it, it sounds like something... It sounds like a car salesman for, for, for a exactly. shitty car that's not going to work. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The sizzle reel. Um, I don't do sizzle reels because I'm not a slick sizzle reel editor. I edit, you know, I, I am involved in a substantial way in editing most all the films I've done. Um, and sometimes I've been the sole editor on them, like on Compassionate Spy, I was the sole editor. But... I've cut a lot of demos over the year for projects that I want to do, starting with Hoop Dreams. And, and they typically are longer than a sizzle reel. Sizzle reel is usually like a glorified trailer for some film you want to make, right? <clears throat> what I do is, and they're different depending on the project, but um, typically what I do is, is that I will cut a section of what could almost look like it's a part of the film that I'm wanting to make. 
Uh, so in the case of Compassionate Spy, I did uh, a version of of uh, Joan telling um, the story about the Rosenbergs' execution, uh -huh. right? Uh, Amazing story, the by the way. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the things I cut. And then I went online and I found pictures from the Rosenbergs. I found video. I found things to support that. Um, I hadn't shot the recreations, of course, that we did when we made the film proper. But it was such a powerful story. I was able to really convey sort of like what an amazing storyteller Joan is and kind of what an amazing life that she and her husband had had together, you know, in an extraordinary life. So that was one of the things that I, um, that I put into this demo. And, and that's typical of what I'll do is I'll, I'll cut kind of a, a few scenes. Um, and sometimes if they, if they're not linked in any way, I'll just separate them with black, you know, and say like, here's a scene, here's a scene, here's a scene. And I, I find that that has worked well for me over the years because it, it allows people, I think it allows people to see past the smoke and mirrors of a sizzle reel mm -hmm. and to really sort of see like, well, what do you really got here? Right. I mean, what do you really got? And, and that's worked well for me in terms of getting funding. So um, it's interesting to hear you say, like process-wise, you know, a couple of things I want to put a finer point on. One is, and I found the same thing, right? Certain stories I go out and sort of solicit that end up becoming films, or it's something that I've had a long-standing passion for, and then others just knock on the door and like, right. okay, this film wants to come to you in some way or another. And and so it's interesting when when a story wants to come into the world in some way or another, it sort of finds the custodian for that story, which, which, which is sort of like what it sounds like in this case. Um, and then the other thing that struck me as you're talking about kind of getting this off the ground is when you have a feeling about something, you just go. It's like, okay, let's go see, like the only way to actually explore this is to start shooting and to take it into the edit with you and to see, like, and to see what it is. Is that pretty typical for you? It is pretty typical. I mean, <clears throat> Because sometimes I did this with the Abacus film. Uh, it was a very similar process where we went to New York and I spent time with the family in, in Abacus that's at the heart of that film. And I needed to I needed to to see who they were and whether I was interested in telling their story because I knew going in that I wasn't going to have access to the courtroom. I wasn't going to have access to the prosecuting attorneys. I was going to have limited access. So the story was going to have to be them. And so by spending a few days with them, I decided, yeah, I think there's a film here to be made. And so that's that's not at all unusual um, for me to do. I, I much prefer to go out and shoot a little bit and find my way as to whether I really think this is something that I really want to spend time with. Because, you know, I'm one of these filmmakers, I don't juggle, I know I had two projects out in short order, but they were both years in the making. I'm not a filmmaker who has five projects going and I'm sending people out to shoot stuff for me. And no, I'm, I'm very hand making on. them. Yeah, you're, <laughs> yes. hand, you're hand making your films. <laughs> yeah. And, and so because of that, I have to decide whether I'm, I'm up for that, right? And, and there's no better way to know if I'm up for it than to literally go out and do a little bit of shooting and take the measure of the situation and take the measure of the people that you're 
possibly going to commit uh, quite a bit of time to. And and the added advantage is is that then I come back with something that I can use to sell the film. You know, I don't do pitch decks. I mean, I probably will have to do a pitch deck at some point, but I haven't You just done cursed it. yourself to having to do a pitch deck. Yeah. Well, I I've, I've been lucky. I haven't had to do one yet. Because what I've been able to do is is instead of a pitch deck is I've been able to give someone something actually real um, to look at and say, oh, oh, okay, that's that person's interesting. Um, that story is interesting. And so that is my preferred way to go. I mean, I look, I love to get funding up front for something and not have to even go through that process. And sometimes that happens. But it's more typical for me to do some initial filming and then pitch it and try to get make it a reality. How small of a footprint do you roll out with? Like when you go to meet her in Cambridge, like what, what's the crew size and, and um, you know, is it tiny or, or is it like what do you, what's your well, apparatus? That was probably um, one of the larger crews I've had on a documentary. And it was a DP, me, a sound person, uh, producer, and we um, and 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 oh well, two producers uh, and Dave Lindorf's um, nephew, uh, who was in the business, was our uh, second camera. Uh, but what's typical for me in terms of making the documentaries I've made is two or three people mm -hmm. total, and if it's two, I'm shooting, mm -hmm. um, and it's me and a sound person. And usually that sound person is also a producer on the film. Uh, so they're a creative collaborator in that process. <clears throat> and if it's three people, then I get to not have to have the camera on my shoulder and I get to just, you know, play director. Um, right. And, but that's pretty typical. I, I like to work small. I've always liked working small. It goes all the way back to Hoop Dreams. Uh, the, the majority of Hoop Dreams was shot with Peter Gilbert shooting and me doing sound for that film. Um, just two of us out in, in the, you know, following the story. And I love the intimacy of that. And of course, it also makes it much more affordable. You know, yeah. I, I'm a bargain. I've been a bargain my whole freaking life. Mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to doing these films, I, you know, well, I mean, which has probably bought, you know, been a been an instrumental piece of buying you the independence and creative freedom. Um, it, it because has. it's not a, it's not a battleship that you're having to turn around with, you know, <laughs> exactly. money going into the paper shredder every five minutes. <laughs> exactly. That's true. Um, so, so then as you go to sort of, you know, uh, like you come back from that, you've, you've shot, you're like, okay, amazing, amazing character, amazing, uh, storyteller. Um, I think there's a film here. Um, how do you go about kind of budgeting this film in particular in terms of like, okay, how many days are you going to shoot? What's that going to cost? How do you figure out the recreations? Um, you know, what's right. your music budget going to be like when you're, when you're conjuring it from that short amount of that small amount of material, how do you build that out and how close do you adhere to, to sort of the, the plan that you hatch? Yeah. Uh, great questions. <clears throat> um, I decided fairly early on in the process, um, you know, before I took it to participant that we, we, I wanted to do recreations for it. You know, I've never done that for a documentary before. Uh, so that was, that was a new thing for me as a documentary filmmaker. I, I did some narrative stuff many years ago, TV movie and one feature. Um, Prefontaine, so right? Prefontaine. <laughs> yeah. That classic. Um, and, uh, so I had some experience, it, it had been a while, but I had some experience in that world, 
but I had never done it in a documentary. So I had to, I had to budget that. I ended up hiring this amazing um, uh, woman, Maureen Ryan, who has done a lot of producing of recreations for documentaries. I was able to hire her to budget out our recreations because she was, she, you know, she could do it in a way I could not do it. So that became part of the budget. And then, and then otherwise it's sort of like just thinking through like, okay, well, you know, because we're not shooting this in Chicago, well, we shot the recreations in Chicago, but because the documentary part of the film isn't happening in Chicago, it's happening in Britain or it's happening by flying somewhere to interview someone. Um, then I just try to, I just try to figure out, you know, about how many days I think I'm going to need and how much travel is going to be involved. And you take a stab at it. And um, I think I knew pretty early on that I wanted to use existing classical music because Ted and Joan were so avid about classical music and, and in particular about Mahler um, and, and the significance of Mahler's music to the story. So I make certain decisions and that governs my, um, my budgeting. But then of course you try to build in, you know, you build in for things you can't possibly anticipate. And if you've got a good partner, um, then, you know, it's possible once you get really into making it that you can maybe increase your budget a little bit. Um, I think we were pretty close with this one. I think, I think the budget I gave to participant when they said they were interested in considering it was pretty much spot on for what we ended up spending on the film. Um, did you know all of the interview subjects and sort of where they were or how much of no. like, how thorough had that been analyzed? No, I, I knew that I did not want to talk to a lot of people. <laughs> I, I, my guiding principle was if there was any way that I could just tell this story with Joan and Ted, with Joan in the present and Ted from the past, that I would do it. But I, I realized, or I made the decision, some people may disagree with this decision if you see the film, but I made the decision that in order for people to um, really be able to assess Ted's thinking and whether what he did was plausible and not um, misguided, that I had to talk to a few experts. Um, for this story, but I did not want to fill it up with a bunch of, you know, experts and in a on, generic way that left that law that that costed its intimacy, I think. is what No, I wanted this to be as personal story as possible. And so I was very clear with my producers, I said, you know, if we can get away with interviewing, you know, no more than three people outside the story itself, that would be great. And and that became a guiding principle. So that factored into the budgeting. I knew that we wanted to try and talk to Sabi's, uh, Ted's you know, collaborator in this, to talk to his family. We knew that Sabi wasn't alive, but we knew that his children were. So we factored that in as well because they're part of the story. You know, those, those are great people to have in the story. So, you know, I, 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 I don't always know, I mean, especially with more verite driven films, I, I, don't, I don't really have a sense in a verite driven film of where it's all going to take me and, and, and how limiting I want to approach it from a production creative standpoint. With a film like this, it was it's kind of unusual because I was able to kind of figure that out more in advance and, and then be able to stick with it. 
in a, in a verite film, you know, because I'm following stories where they take me, I have no idea where those are going. And so the budgeting of a verite story is more complicated in the sense that <clears throat> what I tend to do when I'm budgeting a verite film is I build in considerably more days of shooting than I anticipate I'm going to need when I think about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I make sure I build in, and this is vitally important on every film I do, <clears throat> I really try to build in plenty of time for the editing because to me, you know, documentaries That's where you are make made them. ultimately yep. in editing and, and I never want to feel like I don't have the time to really edit the film the way it wants to be edited. And so I've been lucky partly because I edit myself. Um, but I pay myself to edit, you know, in the budget, but, mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm very affordable. <laughs> <laughs> and I love editing. And so I always try to make sure there's plenty of time in that budget. So, you know, it's sort of like you envision what you think you want to do, and then you pad it out some because you have no idea at that stage where it's going to ultimately take you. And, you know, and sometimes I've had to get some increase in budget and other times, um, you know, I've been pretty, pretty good at, at predicting what I need and, and been able, you know, I've mostly been able to stay on budget, which is great. I mean, through most all the films I've done. There's an interesting blend of elements in this movie where, you know, you have these very intimate interviews, then you've got fascinating archival that you're cutting to, whether it's, you know, Walter Houston in the, in the archival film or whether it's the, and then you have the scene with Joan and her daughters, uh, which is this very, um, I think, emotionally powerful story, uh, which kind of brings us into the present tense and the resonance of the story. And, and you sort of see it kind of, um, the legacy kind of cracking through, you know, for, 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 for this family now, all these years later. And it's an interesting set of, and then of course you have your, you know, recreations that are being done. And then you've got, you know, archival elements that are either from, you know, specifically from their lives or, you know, pulled from other sources to, to kind of paint it out. Um, like, do you have any idea, like, how clear were you, you know, early on in this, it's going to be this blend of all these elements? Or is it once you're in the bay and you're cutting and you're like, you know what I really need to reframe so that people understand kind of the genesis of the Cold War uh, and the, the shifting, um, you know, geopolitical strategies vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union? I really need to get this. Or do you know all that at the beginning? You, no, I don't know it all at the beginning, but I, I sort of anticipated with this film um, that, you know, essentially we were going to throw the kitchen sink at it, you know? I mean, it's just, it's sort of got elements of kind of all kinds of ways to approach telling stories in it. And, and I, and I've never been, um, you know, some filmmakers are very, um, and, and I respect this decision. Some filmmakers are very, um, they make certain guardrails for how they're going to tell a story uh, aesthetically, creatively, and they stick to them. You know, if, if they're pure verite, they're not going to interview anybody. You know what I mean? That's the, the obvious example. Um, but there's others, other films, aesthetic choices that filmmakers will make and they'll stick to them. I have never been that kind of filmmaker. Um, I've always approached the films I've made as I just want to, find the best way for me to tell the story and everything is on the table. 
in that regard. So with a with a story like this, you know, I knew that that we would need archival to to tell the story because it's a story from the past. So, um, you know, I, I knew that I was going to need archival. I made this decision fairly early on that I wanted to do recreations because Joan's stories, uh, Joan's accounts of these uh, stories from Ted with Ted or even before she met Ted were so dramatic. I knew there would be nothing to look at. Mm -hmm. There would, you know, he's not, he's not Robert Oppenheimer, you know, there, <laughs> there would be nothing to see. Um, and so I, I made these decisions fairly early on. And then with this film, because this film straddled uh, COVID, we first interviewed Joan in 2019 and spent that time with her daughters and her. <clears throat> and I got quite a bit from that. And then I started to edit. I started to sort of piece together the story because I also had Ted's footage that I'd mm -hmm. been given. So I started to piece it together and I spent a lot of time before I even hired uh, an archival producer and um, I hired the, one of the best. I mean, she's a filmmaker, a great filmmaker in her own right, Sierra Pettigill. Um, she came in, before she even came in, I, did, I just searched a lot of stuff online that I was editing with. And it's amazing, I'm sure you know this, there's how much there is online. So the process really, you know, and then I would say, okay, this is where a, uh, this is where a uh, recreation needs to go. And it would just be a card, you know. Um, so I started that process kind of knowing that I was gonna be ranging pretty far and wide in the approach. And I've always, yeah, I did one other biography uh, film. I mean, the, the, the Walton ESPN is a biography. But uh, when I did the Roger Ebert biography, one of the things I was con sure that I wanted to do was not just tell his story rooted in the past. I wanted to spend time with him because I'm a filmmaker that loves to hang out with people. I love to follow people around. So anytime I do a story, even if most of their story is, is took place in the past, like Ted's, I want to find ways to bring it into the present if I can, because it's just what I love to do. So um, you, it's interesting, you know, you, you mentioned Oppenheimer and in, in the, in the, in the kind of, you know, obviously like the timing of that and the, and the, and the, and the shadow of it. Um, and there's also a, a really interesting book that I have read. I'm, I'm curious if you've come across this, there's a, there's a, an author by the name of Benjamin Labatut who wrote this book called the maniac, um, which is about Johnny von Neumann. Put, put this in your queue. It's absolutely okay. one of the most spectacular pieces of uh, nonfiction on the page that I, I've read in a while. The, the, um, just as an aside, but um, within when you're working with this, you know, the specter of the sort of like Oppenheimer phenomenon like happening at the same time and ended up like, um, ended up, I would imagine, being very beneficial in some way to, to to awareness or the illumination of the sort of historical context. Is that true, yeah. or was it a pain in the ass? No, um, I mean, you know, I, I think Christopher Nolan heard we were doing this documentary, and then he decided he wanted to jump on the bandwagon. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think that's how it happened. Um, we did start our film before we even knew that. Oppenheimer was even a gleam in, in Christopher Nolan's eye. So, and I remember when we started this project thinking, I'm just totally fascinated with this story of this guy who's been dead for over 20 years. I don't know if anybody's gonna be interested in this. You know, like, it's almost like, well, 
nuclear bombs. I mean, we're all worried about climate change and you know, right. we're not we're not even thinking about those issues, right? I remember thinking like, I don't know if anybody's gonna be interested in this, but it's a pretty great story. So maybe we'll hook people with that. Well, when we found out that Christopher Nolan was doing Oppenheimer, we thought, we actually thought that's a good thing because mm -hmm. it would, with him and with that massive movie, it would bring, you know, it would bring um, this whole time period back into the zeitgeist um, in a way that that I thought would be would be good for us. And Magnolia was really smart about it in terms of the release of it. They waited till um, two weeks after Oppenheimer opened for our film to sort of smart. come out. And and you know, I remember when I went to see Oppenheimer, I went to see the opening weekend, and I was just I was like. I came out of it and I thought, you know, our film is a really excellent companion to this. Mm -hmm. You know, it sure is. It's a it's an excellent companion, and so, so it ended up being a benefit to us that that you know he did this massive movie. <laughs> you know, a couple of things that I just want to share with you about that I that I particularly loved about the film, and any thoughts or reflections you have, just you know, it, cut, cut me off and interrupt me, and and but. <laughs> I think one of the beautiful things about this is, yeah, it's a spy story in some, you know, foundational sense, but it's also this kind of incredible love story. Um, and the, the way those two intertwine is so um, human and grounding and relatable. And I just thought that was so elegant the way you had merged those two. Well, <clears throat> thank you for that. Um, one of the first things I said to my producing partners when we left that initial shoot in Cambridge with Joan and her daughters was I said, I, I am as keen to tell the love story as I am the espionage story. It was so clear, right, that that was such a beautiful part of this story. And, you know, we're so used to seeing espionage stories, whether it's TV shows or, you know, a million movies or uh, novels. <clears throat> and they're all about intrigue and, you know, and geopolitics and all of that. And, and you know, it's, it's fascinating, compelling and important. But I love the idea of grounding this entire story through this love affair between these two young people that, you know, persisted throughout his entire life and, and how she was so in his corner and so protective of him and and that they were able to kind of also kind of raise a family um, and give a family a, a pretty normal life despite all of that, you know, the, it was kind of extraordinary. And so I just really very much wanted to tell that story. So I'm really glad that you took that away from it. Yeah, I just, I thought it, it just landed, it, it gave it such depth and humanity and um, may, like, it, I think it puts the audience in a, it's very easy to look at a story and not step inside it. And this really enables you to sort of step inside it and inhabit it as if like, you know, there but for the grace of God, you know, go I kind of phenomenon. The other thing that I thought was really fascinating, and I've done, you know, oddly for some reason lately, a, 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 quite a bit of reading about the genesis of the Cold War. And like the Cold War was so defining for so long, you know, really kind of until in some way or another, September 11th sort of swept that aside and it becomes the, you know, the war on terror and the kind of, right. you know, contemporary, you know, geopolitical insanity that we all <laughs> live, live with now, you know. Um, 
But I, I thought there was also a really beautiful reframing of that history and retelling it, recontextualizing of it in a way. Like you forget how close the, um, in some ways, the relationship was between the Soviet Union and the United States in, uh, you know, throughout the, you know, the ending of the World War, and then how the wheels get put in motion and the motivations, you know, it like. If without the intimate knowledge of the story, it's easy to say, oh, you, you traitor or you, you know, sort of whatever the, the sort of facile, you know, criticism might be. But then when you sort of understand that, why, you know, the way the world was, it enables you to kind of re-experience that history in an incredibly nuanced and thoughtful way. And I thought it was like, and it's hard to do that because there's a, a great deal of like exposition and information that the audience needs, but it needs to be in this immersive dynamic story. And I just thought you threaded that needle so beautifully. Oh, <clears throat> thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think most Americans and certainly when I was growing up, I'm an old guy, but I, I don't know how much it's changed. The, what we have ten tended to learn about World War II was is that the U.S. won the war, right? That all was almost lost until the U.S. entered the war, and then we t we turned it all around. And that's just not true. I mean, yes, we played a vital role without question, but World War II would not have been won without the Soviet Union. And I think, I, I, I dare say most Americans have no clue Yep. as to that truth, or that we were even allies during the war. And um, and that's why when I tripped across the Mission to Moscow film online. Amazing, amazing. <laughs> and I watched the whole thing. I mean, I, I recommend watching the whole thing. Uh, it is an amazing film. It's an amazing piece of filmmaking, but it's also an amazing slice of, of a kind of history and propaganda that was generated to support the war effort. Um, it you know it just it it really dawned on me that it was really important to put people back in that time that will be clueless about that so that they can understand where ted was coming from you know i, I mean i think this is a film this is clearly a film that is sympathetic towards ted of course i i wouldn't have made the film to you have to love him in some way if you like for i would imagine to take that voyage you have to like love and respect your subject right it's not yeah, a it's not a takedown I mean, piece yeah why would i go root some guy out of history that most people have never heard of so that i can set him up and knock him down i mean i just wouldn't have done the film if i thought <clears throat> what he had done was profoundly wrong i don't think i would have made the film uh, joan wouldn't have wanted me to make that film and i wouldn't have made that film so the film is sympathetic to him but i hope it also gives the viewer room to see that he also was thoughtful about all this and that he had some misgivings himself that he had concerns and when he you know he was a communist he came from you know russian immigrant family that were leftists um, and but that when when he, when it became clear to him what Stalin was all about, he did have misgivings about what he had done. Joan never had him. <laughs> Joan. Well, except maybe in the in the like the you know the the Rosenberg's sort of episode yes. is like that's the sort of you know moral emotional crucible for them yes. where it's like oh and and the and the like conflicted pain of that I thought was so beautifully rendered. Yeah, but I mean, you know, I think what happened in the Rosenberg situation was, you know, that that first of all, Ted wanted 
to confess to save the Rosenbergs, right? And Joan said, no, you will not. You will just destroy us, which she was absolutely right. Um, but that gives you a sense of the man. Uh, and, sure does. And, 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 and of his moral courage, whether you agree with what he did or not, he was morally courageous. And, and so I think that was important to me. And I think in order for you to really assess what he had done, you need that history. And yes, you're right. It was a challenge of just how to, to bring that history through in a way that, that was detailed enough to give the audience the proper grounding to understand Ted's story, but not overwhelm them with a history lesson. Um, one of the things I was unaware of and, and learned on this film, and, and it's a, to me, it's one of my favorite, more historical moments in the film, was how most of the significant advisors to the president were Wall Street guys. It was astonishing. And, and you know, these are guys in history that I knew about, but never knew that their roots were in Wall Street. And that was a that was a, a bombshell to me to, to learn that. And I wanted to get that into the film. And and just sort of illustrative of like, well, of course, this is how the military industrial complex was born, right? Like yeah. it's uh, like the financial incentives are sort of so overwhelming that that like how how could the monster not have been fed? Um, two last questions for you, Steve, which is, are, do you have any, as given that we're coming up on it next year, are you going to do any, are there re-release plans for Hoop Dreams or what, 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 uh, what, what commemoration is there? It's a big milestone and, and, you know, documentary cinema. Yeah. Uh, there, there's some, there's some talk, uh, about maybe trying to do something next year, um, towards the end of the year. It, it, it premiered in October of 1994. So aiming towards, um, the fall, I think, if we can, we're going to, you know, we hope to to have it maybe, you know, maybe it could be in theaters in a limited way. Um, that would be a, a gas. It's, it's, there's nothing etched in stone yet, but I think there's interest in, in possibly doing something like that. So I, I hope that that happens. That would be that would be great. That would that would be amazing, and I will be I will be first in line at my local cinema for it. Are you? Uh, you know, it's funny when by the time I finish a film, I'm so like PTSD'd and burnt out from it. I've never gone back and watched anything. Like, how long has it been since you've sat down and actually screened Hoop Dreams all the way through? Or are you? Or are you? Is that less? Are you? Do you? Are you less burned by them when you finish? No, no, I don't. I don't tend to go back and look at films unless I haven't. Uh, a, a real reason to watch them. So the last time I saw Hoop Dreams was frankly uh, around 10, 11 years ago when um, Hoop Dreams was sort of restored. I mean, I remember when they came to me and they said, we want to restore Hoop Dreams. I was like, I, I, I think it's okay. I think it's, <laughs> it's, I think it's, you know, it's, we did shoot it on video. So it's, it is what it is. But they had this new technology. They were able to up res it. It looks better than it ever looked when it, when it, uh, originally came out in 94. So if, if we are successful in getting it into theaters, it will actually look better than you've ever seen it. Um, so as a result, I had to watch the film again um, in preparation for all of that. And, um, and I was like, you know, it's a pretty good film. It's a great film, man. One of the one of one of the one of the greats ever done. Um, last question for you: Can you share with us at all, sort of what you're what you're at work on now, or do you do you not do you not reach a hand into the magic hat until it's time to unveil it? 
No, I don't. I, I've got some a couple of things in development that I'm very excited about. They're not for real yet, and um, but even if they were for real, I probably wouldn't mention them. I, I love to work under the radar. Um, I, I hesitated to, to even radar. ask, but I was just greedy yeah. for selfish reasons. No, no, to know. it's a totally reasonable <laughs> question. Totally reasonable question. Um, well, I'm so grateful for your time. I'm so grateful for your body of work. I love the new film and, um, and it's an honor and a pleasure to, you know, finally have the chance to, uh, connect with you. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Hey, thanks. I really greatly enjoyed talking to you. All right. Take care, Steve. You too. Thank you to Steve James for making his films and for sharing his time. And thank you to Ted and Joan Hall. See you next time on the dangerous art of the documentary. The Dangerous Art of the Documentary is a Tillerman Films production, produced by Jacob Miller. Music by Zydepunk, Graham Tracy, and James Carroll. It's distributed by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler through Double Elvis Productions. Thank you for listening.